Welcome everyone to FF Plus, your outlet for weekly reviews that are simple, short, and spoiler-free. I'm your host, Aaron White, and I've got three new movies to talk about this week. We're going to just go ahead and jump right on in, as we'd like to do. So, first up is a documentary that I was highly looking forward to, Wildlife from National Geographic Documentary Films. It features interviews with Christine Tompkins, Yvonne Chouinard, Rick Ridgway, and more. It is directed by Elizabeth Shai Vassarhelyi and Jimmy Chin. Cinematography is by Jimmy Chin and Claire Popkin. Music is by Gustavo Santaolalo and Juan Lequi. It runs 93 minutes and is rated PG-13. What's it about? Wildlife is a sweeping portrait of conservationists Chris and Doug Tompkins, chronicling their fight to preserve one of the last truly wild places on Earth. Now, I came to this with high expectations because of Shai Vesserhoyi and Jimmy Chin's involvement. Been a big fan of them pretty much since they came into filmmaking. They burst into the scene really with Free Solo, following Alex Honnold's journey. And I was riveted by that. Then they made The Rescue a couple of years ago, which was about the Thai soccer team stuck in a cave. That was also a phenomenal film. And so they do really good work. And they have a way of not just capturing the nature around some of these incredible stories. Jimmy Chin being a longtime nature photographer. I don't know if nature's the right word, maybe extreme sports photographer, but the ability of them to really hone in on the human reasons for why people do the things they do out in the world. This, however, is not about any sort of extreme athleticism. This is about a story of conservation, and it is very personal to them, and that is clear. This is them making a film about someone who was Jimmy's mentor and someone who they both considered a friend, which I think might have been a slight problem. We'll talk about that here in a second. So the film is really about Douglas and Chris Tompkins both, but it starts with Chris, who is embarking on this journey to climb a mountain that was named after her by her late husband, Doug. This is sort of a moment of reflection for her. We start and end the film with her going on this journey uh, as a means of kind of overcoming some of her grief. And then the whole middle of the film is really all about their life and how they got to this place, what happened, what happened to Doug, why he's not any longer with her, etc., so Douglas Tompkins was an American businessman, and before becoming a conservationist in Chile, he was the founder of North Face, which you may or may not be familiar with, but it's a very, very popular clothing brand, and he made millions and millions, if not a billion dollars, off of this. He met Chris who had been the CEO of another very well-known clothing brand called Patagonia for about 20 years. They fell in love, and in 1993, they moved to the mountains of Chile and Argentina with the goal of creating national park systems in order 
to do conservation. They were very eco-minded and they wanted to use their fortune to do good. This was their dream. They would fly back and forth between homes in these areas in South America and also in California. They both wanted to set up these large conservation charities and then just restore millions of acres of the wilderness. The documentary is telling that story. And while Chris is our central figure because she's the one that's alive, most of this is about Doug. Doug feels like the driving force behind so many of the decisions that have been made. And it tells his story of how he started out as one of the dirtbag climbers and then rose to become the CEO of North Face and then the ways in which he was so determined to make these conservation efforts work. At one point, he goes as far as to put out a $2,500, essentially a hit, a wanted dead or alive poster on someone who kills sea lions in one of their park. They had to endure death threats because of this. They had wiretaps on their phones. People did not want them there doing what they were doing to the land, and they felt they were in the right. And so the film covers all of this, talks about their fight against commercial salmon farming and how hard it was to get the locals on board with what they wanted to do. Eventually, Doug passes away in an accident. That's covered. We see how Chris's grief is handled and how she emerges with kind of a fierce determination and an intention to continue this work that was so important to them. And then we learn about how Doug's death kind of galvanizes the country and the opposition to their work sort of evaporates. And we kind of get to learn what they ultimately ended up meaning to the people in these areas of Chile. And I really enjoyed, for the most part, going on this journey. I learned a lot about two people that I did not really know of prior to this. And that's always good. And for what it's worth, no matter what you think of them in their entire lives, the fact that they have these millions of dollars that they're willing to give up in order to attempt to make things better in these areas, to preserve the land, to conserve the environment, those are admirable goals. I think, though, that the filmmaking here, while gorgeous, of course it looks absolutely beautiful because Jimmy Chan is making sure that the photography is top-notch, it really feels sanitized to me in a way that indicates as much as they may have wanted to try and stay unbiased, the fact that these two people were heroes to them as filmmakers really comes through. There is nothing in this that makes you question their decision-making and their efforts. It's really pro-them in every single way. It's like a celebration of them doing the right thing, which is great. I think we should do that because so many don't do what maybe you would consider the right thing. So many people who are rich use their money. In my letterbox review, I wrote, Today I learned that not all billionaires suck. And that's true. but. It's almost a cartoonish depiction at times of this man and of his efforts because everything he does is considered a positive by the camera and the way that it is relayed to us. So 
I think that as documentaries go, this doesn't quite hit the spot perfectly because it's not painting a full picture. It also struggles a bit because of its focus on Chris. And it's hard to fault them for this because she's the one that's alive. But the movie feels like it's about Doug and the marketing feels like it's about Chris. And there's a little bit of a clash there, in my opinion. Yes, they're a couple. Yes, they were both involved in this. And ultimately, Chris carries on this work in his name that is really just celebrating the efforts of what he had gotten started, but it also feels like he was responsible for so much of it for so long, and that she was kind of just along for the ride as a co-decision maker at times, but it's a little off-balanced for me. It's still a beautiful story. It's still absolutely something worth learning about and well-told. I have not like gone out on Chai Versailles and Jimmy Chin, but I do think that this is not the kind of thing that is perfectly in their wheelhouse. And, uh, you know, to step back for them as filmmakers slightly, primarily because we're dealing with them covering their friends. I do think that if they did not have the relationship that they do with these two people, if this was just an outside observer who was coming in and saying, oh, I, I know this amazing story, let's put them behind the camera and tell it, I think it might have come out feeling a lot different and feeling a lot more faithful to reality. The fact that they even had to convince Chris to do this makes me a little uncomfortable (laughs) as well, because these are reclusive people who don't go out in the public a lot. And here we are putting this kind of perfect spin on what they're doing for the world to see. Anyway, I, I do think it's worth checking out. It looks great. It sounds great. It's good story that moves pretty quickly at 93 minutes. It's not overstaying. It's welcome. But those are my criticisms. So go into it. Take things with a grain of salt and maybe go do your own research after you see this to kind of fill in the blanks and learn about the full gamut of who Doug and Chris Tompkins are. They're not terrible people. Don't get me wrong. But This doesn't give you the full perspective. Wildlife is available in theaters in Seattle now and also in select theaters across the country. So check the official film website for local availability. Next is Carmen from Sony Pictures Classics. It stars Melissa Barrera, Paul Mescal, Rossi De Palma, Tracy the DOC Curry, Elsa Pataki, and Nicole Da Silva. It is directed by Benjamin Melipede, and it is written by Alexander Danilaris and Loic Barrer and Benjamin Melipede. Its cinematography is by Jorg Widmer, and music is by Nicholas Bertel. It runs 116 minutes, it is in English and Spanish language, and it is rated R for language, some violence, and nudity. What's it about? Carmen flees the Mexican desert, is rescued by Aiden, and together they struggle to evade the authorities as they head for Los Angeles. Now, I've not seen the opera, so I have no real point of comparison here, but Millipede's adaptation of the source material is likely all I think I will ever need. This is a true artistic reimagining that takes an illegal immigrant on the run from a cartel, and it pairs her with an aimless wanderer who has PTSD, and then it sends them on an entrancing journey that blends 
magical realism, which was not my favorite part of this particular movie, didn't really do anything for me, with the language of dance and violence as they try to escape law enforcement. Those folks are not interested in their tragic and unfortunate circumstances, how they met, why they're on the run. Those questions never get asked, and that's not the point of the story being told to us in this version. This is all about the steamy chemistry between Barrera and Mescal as they navigate a few dark and haunting days. Nicholas Bertel's sweeping operatic score and the cinematography and the choreography that are both incredibly captivating to look at make this an audiovisual delight. And it's also highly emotional, despite being very light on actual plot. Opera itself is all about evoking strong, powerful feelings from the audience. And at the very least, I think that this new version of the classic is able to convey that experience in spades. It's wanting you to go on a journey. It is wanting you to feel it and to vibe with it. It's not about the A to B plot here. You pretty much know how this is going to end right from the start. That is not in question. But watching two people struggle to find themselves while finding each other and then wondering who is really rescuing whom. Is Aiden saving Carmen from being deported? From being killed by a cartel? Or is Carmen saving Aiden from his violent past? From a life without meaning? It's a little bit of both. And it's a little bit unfortunate that the story doesn't go into more detail. There's a lot of questions, and you have to be willing to engage with it and its experimental dreaminess on its own terms. You have to be willing to let go of the fact that no one even attempts to truly save their lives. No one gives law enforcement an opportunity to do the right thing at any turn. They just run because they know that things have been set up poorly for them, that it doesn't look like it's good and in their favor. And of course, what happens when you run is you look guilty and you just make yourself a bigger target. I really enjoyed this. And for me, the audiovisual experience was enough. I thought that the chemistry was absolutely so on fire. And I enjoyed those elements of the score and the cinematography so much that it let me forget about the fact that the plot was just kind of there <laughs> to give us a reason for these images and this music to exist. So it's worth it, but keep in mind that in that regard, you're almost like watching a movie version of an opera. Because an opera is not necessarily, when it's on stage, it's not about those plot details. You're not having a ton of dialogue happen, right? The story is told to you through the music and through the brief visual sets that you can see that don't have a lot of opportunity to change and be extremely extravagant. So it's kind of like that. If you're up for that, I think you could really connect with this story. It's a beautiful one. It's well told. 
It's not a home run, but it is something that is worth seeking out for sure. Carmen is going to be available in select theaters on May the 12th. All right, last for this episode is Blackberry from IFC Films. It stars Glenn Howerton, Jay Baruchel, Matt Johnson, Rich Summer, Michael Ironside, Martin Donovan, Michelle Giroux, Sungwon Cho, Mark Critch, Saul Rubinick, and Carrie Ells. It is directed by Matt Johnson, and it is written by Matt Johnson and Matthew Miller, and it is based on the book Losing the Signal, the untold story behind the extraordinary rise and spectacular fall of Blackberry by Jackie McNish and Sean Silkoff. Cinematography is by Jared Robb and music is by Jay McCarroll. It runs 119 minutes and is rated R for language throughout. What's it about? The story of the meteoric rise and catastrophic demise of the world's first smartphone. Blackberry is an exhilarating tech biopic that uses a docudrama style which felt like a mashup to me of The Office and The Social Network. So you take that energy, that light, witty, snappy, comedic dialogue of The Social Network, and of course the setting of a new technology being developed and rising to become something big in the world. And then you take this sort of handheld camera style at times, particularly like in meetings when characters are engaging, you will have the camera set up as if it is just outside of the meeting space, observing through a window. There's a little bit of shakiness to it. So it almost has that documentary-esque feel for some of the scenes. It's a mix of those two things, and it really worked for me. The whole film, though, soars on the back of a terrific performance from Glenn Howerton of It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia in a very different role. You may not even recognize him because he is balding in this portrayal as businessman Jim Balsilli, who ends up partnering with the creators of the Blackberry, Mike and Doug to bring a ruthless and zealous approach to their company research in motion. And it helps elevate what they have going on from being a floundering entrepreneurial group of friends who sit around and play video games during the workday, who always have music playing, who are laughing and giggling, and more interested in their weekly, I think Thursday night movie nights than they are getting out a new product, and he helps make them into a global brand with significant market share. And it really changes the world in a lot of ways. Now, the question would be, was someone going to develop a smartphone that was able to take advantage of this internet signal that is just out there at the time and not really being used? Yes, eventually someone else was going to do it. But BlackBerry really took that idea and elevated it to a place where others had to iterate on it if they wanted to keep up. So many of these rise and fall stories in technology in the same way. Making the plot beats, which you could pull up on any number of internet sites right this second, those feel less important than the presentation of the story. 
director Matt Johnson, who also acts in this film as the friend Doug, the original co-founder of the BlackBerry, he delivers on the presentation front. He depicts the genius and the determination behind the famous device that was responsible for its success, as well as the hubris that is mixed with this struggle to keep up in an ever-evolving space, which ultimately led to its downfall, particularly with regards to Howerton's character, who feels almost more like the central one. Jay Baruchel's developer of the BlackBerry, whose name is Mike, he is also a central figure, but Howerton is the one that is able to take his ideas and mold them. Mike doesn't understand the business world. He is naive. He gets taken advantage of. He is the tech guy, right? He is the one that has the visionary brain and ideas for the device, as usually someone will. The movie actually opens up in their first ever meeting. He and Doug are there to try and sell their device to the company that Jim is currently working for. Doug always dresses like a hippie. He wears a Doom video game t-shirt to this meeting. Mike is in a suit. Doug always also wears a headband. It's a sweatband on his head. Very John McEnroe-esque. It's very strange. He wears it throughout the entire film. You always see him with it on, even when he has to put on a suit late in the film to go to a big wig meeting that he's usually not part of. He's still wearing the headband. And I think it really conveys like just the attitude of someone like him who came up in video game development culture, which was all about fun in the office place, as I mentioned, whereas Mike is understanding of that and he kind of lets it go, but he just wants to put his head down and create a device. He's more interested in the technological aspect. And it's shown in this first scene where they're waiting on Jim to enter and he hears a hiss and that hissing buzzing sound is coming from a conference room intercom. Mike opens it up. He uses a paperclip to fix it. He's very frustrated because it's not perfect. And he's frustrated because it was made in China. And he makes a comment about how everything made in China ends up having this buzzing sound because it's not high quality. This will come into play later and provide a really interesting and kind of a big stinger to the film in its final moments as well. It's an exciting anxiety-inducing at times, and often very funny film with a tinge of tragedy as well, and a copycat, but still effective electronic score to boot. There does come a point in the story where the Apple iPhone is introduced. It's a harrowing moment where our characters watch this presentation being made by Steve Jobs and I think realize in real time that they're probably done for. From there, it becomes a mad scramble of them trying to figure out how to compete. How do we stay relevant in a space that is about to completely pass us by? And the film loses a little bit of its momentum. We end up work working on a side plot for Jim's character as he's trying to buy a hockey team, which is something that really happened and I think was put into the film as a means of showing us that he was not fully focused on the mission at the time. He was distracted and preoccupied with his own personal opportunities and gains and how that 
can ultimately affect the company as well and start to lead towards a downfall. It's a whirlwind of things that all occur at once. It's not just one particular thing that sent this company into the ground. It was mismanagement. It was the amazing innovation that happened at Apple. And it was some financial problems that they had that ended up getting them in trouble with the SEC as well. It's told so well, though, and so entertainingly that it's hard to fault this pretty much at all. It's so enjoyable from start to finish, and it is very informative as well. I was a BlackBerry user. I understood the importance of the device, and this movie nails that part of history so well, especially for people who probably didn't experience it. The BlackBerry actually wasn't around for a super long time. But for those of us that got to experience it, the film expresses this well in one of its scenes that is talking about marketing, where they want to sell the BlackBerry as a status symbol and not as a phone. And that is exactly how it felt to own this. It felt like you were elite. You were special. You had this device that could do all of these things that everyone else couldn't. And the blend of having a device that allowed you to work on it because it felt like it was a work device due to this keyboard as opposed to just a device for personal use and entertainment really made this something unique for a large period of time there in the 2000s. I think that this is a good movie. I think it's a good story, well told, and does its job. I think Glenn Howerton, in his performance in particular, is probably worthy of awards consideration. I also think there's a really fun Easter egg in here where during a meeting, Jay Baruchel's character of Mike just randomly hiccups really loudly. And then there's like dead silence for about a beat. And he says, excuse me. And okay, listen, if you're not tracking, Jay Baruchel also plays the voice of a character in How to Train Your Dragon series When you first hear him talk, you may not recognize him visually, but you will recognize his voice if you've seen the How to Train Your Dragon series. His character is named Hiccup. I feel like it's got to be on purpose. Maybe it's not. It was a fun little thing. Matt Johnson, the director, seems like a fun guy, especially the way that he plays his character in this. I think this is worth checking out. Blackberry will be in theaters on May 12th, so go ahead and get out to a theater and see it. This is an independent film coming to you, like I said, from IFC Films, in fact. So these are the kind of movies, the adult dramas that I think we need to support in the theater so that not all of our money is going to the big animated tent poles and the comic book movies and blockbusters. Well, that's it for this episode of FF Plus. Thank you, as always, for listening and for sharing some time with us today. If you've enjoyed what you're listening to, drop us a review on Apple or Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. Also, check out the notes section of every episode for links to our social media sites. I'd love for you to come chat me up at any time. And also be sure and check out the other great shows on our network, the Now Playing Network. You can find a list of those covering all different types of entertainment at nowplayingnetwork.net. I'll be back soon. Until then, keep watching and keep feeling filled. 